Good morning, everyone. I'm a bit of a mobile library today, so um, I'm going to just keep uh, referring to a couple of books on the front that have helped me with, uh, with this uh, particular topic of commitment. And looking at commitment, as Tim said, in our relationships, uh, whatever those relationships may be, it might be a marriage relationship, it might be in parenting, it might be relationship with our life groups, with our friends. Uh, but looking at what makes uh, a life of commitment and how do we live it out in a world that is increasingly less committed? Uh, it was never really more evident, wasn't it, than in the last couple of weeks when so many people are stepping down. It's almost like you're frightened to put on the news to find out who else has stepped down, whether it be football, whichever political party, whatever. People are, are opting out for a variety of reasons. And we live in a world that tends to opt out. That is our culture, that if things aren't going well, if we're not happy, if it doesn't make us feel good, if it doesn't meet all of our needs, then the tendency is, okay, well, we opt out. We live in the world of the prenuptial agreement, where marriage is based on contract, not covenant, where actually it's like, I'll stick with you, but if you do this, then I'm out. And that is the air that we breathe, isn't it, to some degree. That is the world that, that we live in. And we as Christians, if we are Christians here today or would be Christians, if we're searching or looking at this God, we have a phenomenal model in the love of God, just in his commitment to each of us that is so hugely tenacious that will not give up. And I love the book of Hosea. And it was funny, I, I wasn't sure which passages to use and I kept looking in the New Testament and we will turn to the New Testament in the second part of this talk. But this is a stunningly beautiful book, the book of Hosea. Uh, it was written uh, 750 years or thereabouts before Jesus. And it was written prophetically to the Northern Territory of Israel who were in a very, very successful, wealthy patch. And it was written to say, you've lost your first love. God is committed to you, but where are you as a nation? And what offended God the most, and this really touched me reading it again, what offended God the most in all of their debauchery, in all of their overdoing it, the thing that hurt him the most was their idolatry because they'd put other things in the place of their commitment to him, other things in the place of love for him. And I really felt that it was right that we look at this passage today. For me, for all of us, as we look at our capacity to really commit, because it comes from that place. It comes from a receiving of God's love for us in an incredible way. Um, I, I looked up commitment online. I found various quotations. This one made me laugh um, because we used to have a phrase uh, way back when, when I was in a theatre company, where we'd get a booking and it would go into the diary. You can see this ages me slightly. It would go into the diary in pencil. And that kind of meant we're not sure that these people are actually going to come through. We're not sure maybe if it's what the best that we should be doing. It was in pencil. And then the day would arrive when it was in pen. And then everybody stepped up and thought, okay, it's in pen now. There's something in a way that's got into my mindset with that, that I still have a little bit about in committing. You know, well, I'll commit in pencil. But actually, Christ would have us commit in pen 
in our, in our pledge, in our betrothal, as we hear in this passage. Beautiful word, meaning actually that our promise is true and that we live by that promise. So are we in pen or are we in pencil? I, I remember coming to Riverside, I think I probably met with Sue actually at the time, and said, I think I'm here just for a couple of years. And that has been my pattern. Uh, I went to Salt Mine for two years, stayed for 10. I came to Riverside for two years, and this is my 10th year just coming up. Um, so it's funny, isn't it? I, I've got that kind of attitude. Yeah, I, I'm just here. I don't know quite long. How long? Because, you know, I, I, I don't know what's going to be next. And some of us will have that personality. But God has a different way, as uh, I'm living proof of that, that actually he wants us sometimes to really stick in when it's hard, to put our roots down into him and to stick it out. So are we in pen or are we in pencil? Uh, this was good. I don't know who wrote it, but it, it spoke to me. Love is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. To love somebody isn't just a strong feeling, it is a decision. It's a judgment and a promise. And perhaps we know the theory, but that's hard, isn't it, when someone's really getting on your nerves in a marriage situation or in a relationship that you work with or whatever, or family. It's hard to make that decision to love. And one of the, the myths, if you like, that we have, particularly around marriage, is that actually we will wake up every day and just feel, I am so in love with this person right now. Now, there will be days when that's true, but there will be days when it's not true, if we're real about it. And there will be days when that becomes a decision to love that person through that difficult time. Tim Keller, in his brilliant book, The Meaning of Marriage, talks about sticking with marriages. And he, he talks particularly about marriages when they're in difficulty. He says that actually they observed uh, through some studies revealing that a third or two-thirds of unhappy marriages will become happy within five years if people stay married and do not get divorced. I'll just read that again. It revealed that two-thirds of unhappy marriages will become happy within five years if people would stay married and not get divorced. Two-thirds. Now, we, we know that divorce is painful. We know there are reasons in our community why that happens. And God feels the pain of that. He understands divorce. We read that in Jeremiah, that he actually understands the pain of separation, of divorce and actually having to, to, to be unbetrothed, if you like. But there is a sense where we've believed a myth in terms of our commitment. This also really spoke to me on a number of levels. When confronted with a challenge, the committed heart will search for a solution. The undecided heart searches for an escape. Isn't that true of us? You know, it, it's so true. I, I've just recently... Um, joined a new gym. You might not see the evidence quite yet. It's quite a recent joining, but you wait for a year if I'm still around. Um, but actually, what's interesting is I joined with a friend, and my promise to her is to meet her at half past seven. Um, sometimes it's sunny and we, we meet by an outdoor pool, but sometimes it's in the gym and it's hard work. But I know for myself that if I haven't promised her that she will be there and that I will be there, that moment, those quarter of an hour extra in bed or whatever, I just think, you know what, who's going to know? It's just me, isn't it? Who's going to know? But actually, if I've made that commitment, it will get me there. And that's a very basic example, but we know actually it's true of us that actually an undecided heart 
will not help us, but actually a committed heart, a heart of character, as we heard from Harry last week, a heart that has a preparedness about it to commit is a beautiful thing, so that when we're confronted with challenge, we search for a solution, and that's true of our marriages, that's true of our relationships, to search for guidance, to search for help, to search for a solution rather than just saying, I'm out of here, um, and to, to really, really commit. So who's in your boat uh, with you? It may be a marriage, it may be a family, it may be your work situation, this might be your life group, it's not mine, just to clarify, because uh, at least one of them is present. Um, so it, this is, uh, it looked better actually, it looks a bit dark there, but um, there's a picture of who is, is journeying with you in your life that you're committed to, who is in your boat. Just take a, a moment to think about who are the people that you are committed to in your life. Just have a, have a think about that. They don't have to look like the characters there, but um, have a little look. Who are you journeying with? I don't know whether you feel that your boat is full or a bit empty, whether you feel that you're sinking or whether you feel that you're going swimmingly and that it's a joyous journey, that it's more of a cruise, if you like, than a, than a lifeboat. Uh, but there will be seasons in all of our lives when that boat is in difficulty, when those around us are harder to commit to and harder to love. And the book of Hosea, this, this brilliant prophetic allegory, if you like, of God's love, gives us some wonderful insight into how we can remain committed to the people that we love uh, in the way that God has covenanted himself to us. Commitment or covenant is the promise of future love, not a declaration of present love. Commitment or covenant is the promise of future love, not a declaration of present love. I think when we look at contract versus covenant, we know that contract is built on fear. Contract is always built on what if the other person lets me down. The answer is they will. Marriages are not perfect. As a pastor, I have people who come to me time and time again and they say, oh, yeah, you know, the trouble is with Riverside, though. It's just full of such perfect families, isn't it? They're just the couples, they're all so perfect, aren't they? And then the very same people the following week will come and say, everything's not okay. Things are far from perfect. And we can look in on each other's lives and we can see that is perfection. There is no perfect relationship and there is no perfect church because we're in it. But how committed are we to the people that we're married to, to the people that we are walking alongside, to the people that we're in our groups with? How committed are we? Because God says he is so committed to us, as Sarah prayed earlier on. He's so committed to us that whether we feel shame this morning, whether we feel we've blown it, this allegory that, that is spoken through Hosea says God never wants to give up on you. His love is so great. His commitment to us, his promise to us is so great. So we're going to unpack that commitment a little bit and then we're going to look in Mark at our response to that commitment. Hosea 2, verses 14 to 15 says this, I will allure her, I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards. I will make the valley of Accor, that's trouble, the valley of trouble, into a door of hope. 
I will make the valley of trouble into a door of hope. If we commit and persist, we can see that time and time again. I've seen it in my own life. You will have seen it. If you haven't, then stay true. Uh, because God has a way of redeeming things. I'm so passionate about the fact that he doesn't always turn things out the way that we would like. That's certainly been true for me, but he is redeemer. He is redeemer of the valley of trouble, and if you're in the valley of trouble in your relationship, in your family, in your work situation, hold on tight, uh, because this is the God of, of the resilient love, the tenacious love that does this. There, there was a, a lovely lady, and I, I may have shared this with you years ago, but there was a lovely lady I met on a conference uh, in Suffolk who had um, been struggling so much in her marriage, so much to stay faithful, and in the end had decided to um, give up. And during a service um, in her church, someone prayed this, and they prophesied this over the church, and she knew it was for her. She knew that actually she should stay in her marriage at that time. But she said, Lord, make my valley of trouble into a doorway of hope. And she said it was almost a year to the day that her husband and her went to recommit their vows. And they did it publicly. They did it outside in a park nearby. And the church came and they publicly declared that they had been through trouble uh, and that's a bold thing to do, I think, but that they had come into this time of real blessing. If you like, like the, the analysis said, that they'd stuck with the tough years to get to this place. And she said, as I looked up in the park, she said, I'd never seen it before, but she said in the gateway, there was just this gateway right over us, arching over us as we prayed and as we recommitted. She saw a physical doorway of hope. And sometimes we need to envisage the doorway of hope that is ahead when it's not here with us to stay committed. I was uh, listening to Andy Murray ahead of his game this afternoon. Uh, Ruth and I are very excited. I hope others are there to support him in whatever way this afternoon. But he was in a press conference in his usual lovely dour manner, which I adore. Um, and uh, just so analytical, isn't he, in how he approaches it. And uh, they were really trying to get him talking and they were saying, our nation is in a terrible way, Andy. You know, we've lost our football manager, we've lost our prime minister, we've lost everyone from Chris Evans from Top Gear, I'm not sure they said that, I'm just putting it in there. Just quite topical, isn't it? Um, and I do still pray for him uh, very much. But um, so, so all of that news, and they said, so Andy, you are, what does it feel to be the last hope that we have? This was just this week. And he said, am I? Am I? And he said, I really hope not. He said, he said, I'll do my best. But he said, there's so much else out there to hope in for our nation. Uh, and I thought, you know, he is someone actually who does reflect commitment. Our sportsmen and women over this summer have probably lifted us, haven't they, when we look at the political spectrum of all that's going on. But we see our sports people and they are committed phenomenally because they see the future goal. You know, they get out of bed and train uh, a lot earlier than I'm doing, but they do that for that greater good. And that they were saying that Serena Williams grew up picturing winning Wimbledon, picturing 
um, the US Open was her first one, but the goals were pictured long before, and they were what got out of, the, of bed in the morning. And so it can be true for us. So he says he will allure her, he will lead her back. And this is an adulterous wife that Hosea has been asked to marry. There is an amazing book, and some of you will know what I'm going to say here, and some of you won't. There is an amazing book called Redeeming Love by Francine Rivers. I am not a fan of Christian novels, uh, particularly the sort of schmoozy ones. They're, they're, they make me, they're a bit saccharine for me. But I would, if I recommend no other, I would recommend this one. Just put your hand up if you've read Redeeming Love. There's a lot, okay, great. There's a lot of us. I cannot recommend it highly enough. And I think they were all women. They might not have been, but I would also recommend it to the men. Now, you might look at the cover and think, no, thank you, Judy, not in a month. But actually, it is a fantastic book about somebody called Michael Hosea, who is called to love this angel, this woman called Angel, who is unlovable, unfaithful, rude to him, pushes him away, betrays him, you name it, and actually he's called to love her. And in the, the book of Hosea, we have that. You and I know, right here, right now, that we don't deserve that kind of love. None of us do. But actually, God wants to say that's the love that even since we blew it in Eden, even since we lived in paradise and moved east of Eden away into our own ways, that like the northern territory of Israel that it was written for, he is still betrothed to us. He is still loving us. This word betrothed uh, comes in the next few verses. I will betroth you to me forever. This is God speaking to us. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice. I will betroth you in faithfulness, even where we have been unfaithful, and you will acknowledge the Lord. Just incredible words that if we say today, I can't do this, it's too hard. I can't commit, it's too tough for me. But actually, that is the God that is betrothed to you, to your life, to your family, to your marriage. And that's betrothal. We speak of wedding, but it's wider than that. Who are we betrothed to? As church, I hope and pray that in a different way, we're betrothed to each other. That we've made promises when we did belonging to Riverside or when we've made it with our small group to commit to worshipping together, to commit to loving, to commit to confidentiality, to commit to actually not judging each other when we've got it wrong, to the kind of love that we, that we see in this book but also in the whole of the Bible. And I wonder, as we come to our response, if we can just go to the New Testament where we hear what Jesus the central part of this rescue plan, when all else had failed, God sent his son Jesus. And in this betrothal, if you like, to his people, he sent his son Jesus. And Jesus says this uh, to us about the most important commandment, the most important response that we can make to this love. The most important response is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second of these is love. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. If we are to bring the gospel down, if you like, Jesus is saying to two things, 
It's love our God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength. That is an act of will, isn't it? Otherwise, why would he mention our mind? Sorry, the slide is misleading. I'm noticing everyone's reading it and thinking that's not what she's talking about. So don't, don't um, go there yet. I should have a blank slide there maybe. But actually, this is the call on us to love with all our hearts, all our minds, all our soul, all our strength. And it is an act of will, and it's tough. When we worship God and we're in pain, it is a sacrifice of praise. As Matt Redman and Beth Redman, when they wrote the song, uh, Blessed Be Your Name, when you're found in the desert place, that was after numerous, numerous miscarriages, so many miscarriages, that Beth Redman stood in the supermarket and said she just didn't feel she could love God anymore. But God was betrothed to her. He was pledged to her, and so was her husband, Matt. And they wrote this song out of that to actually say, we will worship you when it's costly. We will commit to loving you, God, when we don't know what you're doing. And I wonder as we we respond today whether that's for some of us, that actually we need to receive this incredible, persistent, committed love again from God and respond in such a way that says, God, I love you with my whole heart, with my whole mind. And that's an act of will, not always an act of emotion. As we look at fulfilling our promises, there's a sense of our identity being rooted in the promises that we make. This was said in a, in a survey done as part of the Keller book. Without being bound to the fulfillment of our promises, we would never be able to keep our identities. We would be condemned to wander helplessly and without direction in the darkness of each person's lonely heart. That every time we commit to someone, we extend our boat, don't we? Every time that we commit to someone in our lives, we actually travel not alone anymore, but with others. Commitment saves our lonely soul. It saves our loneliness. And there will be loneliness here today in a whole host of ways. There can be loneliness in marriage or outside of it. But actually, to commit fully to another person is to actually ease the loneliness of the heart because you have an identity that is pledged in a promise to them, with them, for them. And uh, Lewis Smedes uh, says this, the power of promising says, I am he who will be there with you. I love that. And I think if we can say that to the people around us that we love, I am he or she who will be there with you, whatever it's a beautiful thing. It's the sort of commitment that we see rarely, but we long to model, I believe, for a world that needs to see it. Wouldn't it be great if people looked at this body, and I think they do, but I know we can do more, and just said, wow, look at their commitment to one another. Look how they love. See how they love one another, as, as Jesus said. Tim Keller says this in terms of our response and we, as we love one another. He says this, When Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think I'm giving myself to you because you're so attractive to me. He was in agony. And he looked at us, denying him, abandoning him, betraying him. And in the greatest act of history, he stayed. He loved us not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely. That really moves me, actually, just reading it to you now. 
You know, that's the love we're talking about that stays. It's countercultural. You know, we're, we're in the world of the love that doesn't stay. But actually, our calling as Christians is to stay when it's tough, to believe when we can't see what God's doing, to believe in the darkness what we knew to be true in the light, and to promise not just out of a present infatuation or emotion, but out of a promise that is a future promise of loving consistently, unconditionally, in the way that we are loved. So in summary, as we respond, God's love for us has never, ever, ever given up on us. And we deserved it too, didn't we? We know that. But actually, he's pledged himself to us. He said to us, I am he who will be with you. It's one of the promises of scripture that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And the power of staying. And I, I don't know what that means to you, but I did feel strongly today that that was really key for a few people. The power and the grace that is sufficient to stay when it's tough, to obey when it's hard, to commit in a way that attracts the world. Redeeming love is one of the most brilliant love stories. You might find it a bit nauseous, but I just think it sets the bar, <laughs> the guys are looking panicky, it sets the bar pretty high on what committed marriage looks like, but in a way that is real and in a way that actually becomes so beautiful um, as it transforms the lives of all the people around. And wouldn't that be great if that could be said of us, that the love that we model, even when it's hard, is changing our world, is changing the way that we live. Would you stand with me? And I'd, I'd love to pray for us. Lord, we sing the song that you never let go of me, that you never let go of us. And Lord, we acknowledge today that whatever our sin, whatever our state in our relationships, you are betrothed to us as your people. And you have asked us through your son to love you back, to love you with our whole heart, with our whole mind, with our whole strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, we commit afresh to allowing your love to make us lovely again. Thank you that you see the me that we will one day be, and you pledge to that. That in our marriages, that in our relationships, that in our families, there is reward for holding on, and there is deep, deep understanding for those who, for whatever reason, have had to let go. By your spirit, Lord, as we respond, would you enlarge the place of our hearts? Would you enlarge the place of our commitment? Would you enlarge our capacity to stay when others might leave and to remain abiding in your love, abiding in your power, abiding in your grace? For the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.